invite you to a soul level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. We're privileged to have with us today Michael Johnson, who over the years has left his musical mark as a folk singer, songwriter, and in pop and country music. Perhaps his best-known hit is Bluer Than Blue, though a couple of his songs also hit number one on the country charts. He was the artist to introduce me to Greg Brown's gem, Rudy Toot Toot for the Moon, so I owe him a long-standing debt of gratitude. After a long sojourn in Nashville, he's come back to the Twin Cities of Minnesota, where he now joins us by phone. Michael, I'm delighted to have you here today for Song of the Soul. Well, thank you, Mark. It's definitely my pleasure to be a part of all this. And it's a pleasure to have you back in the upper Midwest. You spent quite a while down there in Nashville, and you've just moved back to the Twin Cities. Is it global warming that drove you north? (laughs) That was part of the optimism of it. The truth of the matter is I moved to Minneapolis because, oh, geez, I have a a long-lost daughter whom I had never met, and she's 40-something, and we hooked up three years ago. Come to find out she's a singer. She used to even sing my songs. And we didn't know we were father and daughter. And so she has moved to Minneapolis. And so I am too. I've got uh, two boys down in Nashville and three grandkids down there. So it was not an easy move, but I'm very glad to do it and to uh, be up back up in the cool blue north. I don't want to intrude, but... A long-lost daughter you didn't know about, is this because of your wild and wanton days back when you were a vigorous young man on the music circuit? I I, I just found it a little surprising you didn't know you had a daughter. It is indeed a product of uh, my wild and woolly days. I knew I had a daughter. I did not know if she was alive, and I didn't know her situation in life, and I would... Oh, several times in in my life, I'd hear a knock on the door in various places I'd lived, and I'd run to the door, sure that I would see a little girl with a you know a tweed coat on, looking like Orphan Annie, in a little suitcase. And it's so much for my imagination. And I had tried for years to find her, and there was just just no way to do it. All the things that a, a father would worry about. I mean, is she in an abusive marriage? Is she strung out? Is you know all the all these things, and none of that is nothing could be further from the reality. She's married to the director of the Minneapolis Children's Theater and has a has a wonderful life. And and I also have an, an additional grandson I never knew I had. But yes, she was product of a typical red-blooded American double standard 
25-year-old musician on the road. There was not going to be a honeymoon or a wedding. And the mother, Mary, said, but I'm going to have this child and then sign off on it and give it up for adoption. And uh, I didn't know the date of birth or the hospital, so I was out of the loop. I couldn't find her. This is amazing. Oh, it's a wonderful story. And not only that, Mark, she sings a duet with me on my new CD. She studied opera. She's quite a singer. She's not doing it professionally. She moms professionally. And I asked her three times. She, On the third time, she said, okay. I'll do it. She caved to the old man. She did. She caved. <laughs> well, that's yeah. delightful, and I'm glad you're now living nearby. I'm sure that there's so many years to catch up on. You mentioned she played or had sung some of your songs, so she's a musician. And does she get out on the stage, too? Well, no, I would say not really now. She, Like I say, she moms, but she plays a Celtic harp. She studied opera. And she likes, um, you know, Celtic fairy songs and that kind of stuff. And she's done a couple CDs on her own. When we met, when we actually finally got to look at each other, the second time we met, she came to Nashville to meet my sons, her half-brothers. We sat down in my living room and jammed, if you can imagine that. And she was playing her harp. I'd rented a harp for her. But it got sounding pretty good, so the next day we went into the studio and recorded a song that we had worked up. And after that, you know, there's just something about music, isn't there? Before that point, it was almost, I mean, it was like an out-of-body experience, hugging her and being near her. And uh, there's just something about the music that made for a, a really fine and natural connection. That's wonderful to hear, and that you're giving it the extra time and the possibility of connection by moving back up to the Twin Cities. You lived in the cities for quite a while before heading down to Nashville, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did. I was, I was in uh, Minneapolis for 20-some years before I moved away to Tennessee. And I had a good run down there in Nashville, but I'm uh, really looking forward to being back. Well, it's great to have you back, but we should probably not only talk about our families. I'll talk to you more about this later, but why don't we get started on your Song of the Soul? What would you care to start off with? Well, let me see. Before I talk about the song, maybe I could talk about the soul. I was raised Catholic, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. was uh, tempted to go into a seminary. I thought I had the calling, and it turned out it was my mother who thought I had the calling and not me. But I was a pretty devout Catholic for many years. Oddly, this might sound pretty pedantic to you, but I, uh, I'm i pretty sure I learned how to rehearse by doing penance, by, <laughs> by, conjure, by conjuring up sorrow, conjuring up emotions, and being somewhat autistic about saying a perfect Hail Mary, let's say. And if I didn't mean it when I said, Thy womb, Jesus, or I said some such, then I'd have to start again. That was my little rule. So it made for a rather long time on my knees. And I think I, you know, it's odd, but I really do think I learned how to find my emotional self. And it has really helped to rehearse. <laughs> and how long has it been since you went to the confessional and said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned? My last confession was a long time ago. How long has it been for you? Well, the last time I was in a Catholic church, the Mass was in Latin. So that should tell you it's been a long, long time. And I have, I have actually gone back. I had some uh, altar boy abuse issues growing up.
growing up at age 14, and I remember needing to go back to the scene of that uh, that stuff and seeing if I could have some sort of closure there. And so I went back to the sacristy where this stuff occurred, and I did experience some things. I don't know. I think I probably re-traumatized myself more than found any peace of mind. So it's been a love-hate thing with the church itself, but I have always loved candles and incense and wine and burgundy velvet and stained glass and Latin. So I've always loved the trappings of the church, but there was a time when I went on my own anti-crusade at about age 14 after this altar boy stuff happened. But I still, I dearly love the Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic, too, though I've been Quaker all my adult life. Still, my Catholic upbringing was really very good to me and for me. And I think, and and I cherish it as a part of who I am now. Yeah, yeah. But I recognized that it wasn't a place that I fit after a while, and so I got off on the road to other places. Yeah, me too. I wound up on the road to Vipassana Mindfulness Meditation some Buddhist practices, although Buddhism does not consider it itself a religion, and I don't consider it a religion either, but it has just been a wonderful, wonderful thing for me. So you were going to share something about one of your songs, I think. Yeah. Most of the songs that I've chosen here to speak about, I did not write. And so my process of recording a song is usually based on making it my own. If you remember maybe when you were a teenager and you listened to a song a hundred times, well, I still do that. And I love to do it. And I I just say, what in this is not me? And it doesn't require much surgery. It's just more finding myself in the songs. And I have a dear friend who is a great poet. I think he's a Robert Frost. You know, his name is Hugh Prestwood. And he wrote the lion's share of these songs that I'll be talking about today. So I really have to believe everything in the song. Without that, you know, occasionally we go to war over a lyric, you and I, but only very, very rarely. I respect him so much. I will say that although I didn't write them, I I really do consider them of me as an arranger and as an artist. And the song, the specific song, that seems to be my favorite these days is from my new album, Moonlit Deja Vu. And the song is called How Do You Know What You Know? It answers no questions. Every line in the song is a question. And it, you know, I love science and that kind of honest, empirical thinking. I really have great respect for science and including the fact that science itself pretty much readily admits that it can't answer all the the questions. So that takes you to the leap of faith. And I love questions that are, you know, that's what spirit and religion seems to address is questions that are hard to answer. What are people for? I remember asking my grandmother that one time, and she said, people are for finding out what people are for, (laughs) which I thought was an easy answer. But really, once you think about it a little bit, it's not so far from a legitimate quest, I guess. But yeah, I love the song, How Do You Know What You Know, especially about the big stuff. How do you know what you know about love? And of course, therapists whom I've seen over the years, they love this song too because they see that it's kind of a cathartic song. How do you know what you know? Michael Johnson sharing his song of the soul. Was it when your dad took your little hand And then you weren't afraid Or the heart stitched on that cool 
Michael Johnson is here today with us for Song of the Soul. That was his song, How Do You Know What You Know? It's on his latest CD, Moonlit Deja Vu. And the song was written by Hugh Prestwood, who, it seems to me, Michael, it's, is someone you must collaborate with pretty continuously. Where is Hugh located? Oh, Hugh lives on Long Island. You know, I lived in Nashville for many years. He was a successful Nashville writer, probably still is, commutes to Tennessee to shop his wares and then turns back around and heads north again. But I feel like a student of his, in a sense, because everything that he thinks is up my alley, I I really, I get them. You know, he sends them to me right away. And I live with them and work on them. And, you know, I could do probably two or three additional uh, recording projects of Hugh Prestwood material. While I was listening to that song, I got the sense of inquiring into the fabric of meaning, the source of why things are there. You talked about your own experience, things like Vipassana meditation and also your scientific bent, I think. By the way, I was a physics lecturer at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Oh, taught physics and chemistry while in the Peace Corps. So I'm very much of the scientific mind myself. And in 1980, I had an interchange with someone who was talking about spiritual experiences, how they happened, where they came from. And she had practiced Eastern mysticism, had had startling transcendent experiences. But she said that she knew the subjective, amazing things that she went through could be explained, explained by, broken down into plain physical reactions and chemical processes, electrons and neurons and chemicals all just following the laws of physics. Right. In other words, a straightforward physical explanation for the apparently metaphysical experience she or others have. So I went home after that and had a deep reflection, kind of an extended thought experiment with the ideas. And I came to the conclusion, and this song reminded me of it, that when I followed the assumptions and the consequences down to the ultimate consequences, if I said that it was all mechanistic physics, That would imply that love is not real and that meaning really does not exist. Only the illusion of love or meaning would be there. And since I knew that this was false, that I knew that love was real and that meaning is real, that therefore the initial assumption was false. Now, I don't know how that resonates with you at all, but... It does. I mean, the straight scientific answer of emotion or some sort of definition of consciousness sounds like victory by definition, as they used to say in philosophy class. It's just too small a definition, and I know that love is real myself, although I can see where people who lack empathy might be inclined to just simply believe the straight data, quote-unquote, of, of science answering questions like that. Well, the test I would put them to to see if people really believe that it's just physics happening, no meaning behind it, would be to say to them, then it doesn't matter if I just kill you right now, which of (laughs) course wouldn't matter because their life is just physical and biochemical reactions with no intrinsic meaning or value. Yeah, yeah. But fortunately, they know that I'm a Quaker and a pacifist and that I'm not really going to kill them. (laughs) They probably have a false sense of complacency about it. So you and Hugh, do you collaborate? Do you come up with some of the topics sometimes about songs you want? Or is it always Hugh, the one to originate the ideas for a song? He's always the originator. Once, I think, I offered an idea. He said, I wouldn't know what to do with that. I don't even remember what it was. 
But uh, no, I uh, I defer to his game plan, and then I put myself into it. I really still think that my versions are the definitive versions, and I say that humbly. And the truth of the matter is, if I don't think I'm doing the definitive version of a song, then I don't think I have any business doing it. Well, you certainly have had a number of definitive versions of songs on the country and pop charts over the years. And your versions of the songs I have on the first record I have of yours, There Is a Breeze, has become my standard for those songs. Oh, thanks. While your songs are widely known, I'm not sure your name, however, is on the tip of all listeners' tongues. And I might blame it on your oh-so-common name. I mean, Michael Johnson? Couldn't you have picked a more striking and unique stage name like Bob Dylan or Prince or Bon Iver? I think that Michael Johnson must just pass unnoticed through many people's awareness. I know. It's the most common name in the English language. I was thinking like Michael Machine Gun Johnson or something. But nonetheless, no, I stayed with my name. And it's a blessing in a way. I've had seven hit records and I've had a nearly famous kind of existence. And no one has kidnapped my children. And I've not really been stalked. So, I mean, life is good. And... Not only that, but in my shows, I can perform anything I want to. Because they can't hold it against you? Because they can't figure out which Michael Johnson to blame or stalk if they're unhappy? (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe so. No, it's just that, you know, I had a a hit record called Bluer Than Blue. And I must say, I've heard that song now. Thank you very much. And I don't often do it. And people don't often ask for it. So, uh, you know, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I've always wondered for musicians like the Rolling Stones or Dylan or whatever, if they just get sick and tired of repeating the same popular songs decade after decade, and they think, I'll throw up if I have to do Brown Sugar or Blowing in the Wind one more time. Yeah. Is that why you don't perform it anymore, or is it because it just doesn't speak to your soul anymore? Yeah, it stops speaking to me, that's for certain. And I go through several incarnations of it. As soon as I find myself toying with it when I'm performing it, then I know that I shouldn't be doing it anymore, and I retire it. And then I'll just start all the way back at the very beginning of my learning and arranging that song, bring it down to the common denominator, just the nuts and bolts of it, and then see which way I'm leaning emotionally now on certain lyrics or certain aspects of the song. And then I can bring it back to life for a while anyway, But I think a song has a lifetime, and uh, that that ends. Speaking of lifetimes, another Hugh Prestwood song, Bristlecone Pine, is a, oh boy, it's, it's, it's a fabulous song. It's a very thoughtful song. And, you know, I'm not much of a reincarnationist. One time I was in, uh, was it in sociology class in college? And the guy said, you know, the day may come when the population will have grown to the point in this inverted pyramid, you know, that most of the people who've ever lived are alive. And I thought, gee, I wonder if that could happen. And if so, there's not enough past lives to go around. So that was my little math. But I realized that the problem of rebirth is a very complicated one. And I don't know much about it. But I don't I don't really go there until I think about songs and poems like bristlecone pine, and, you know, the literal planting yourself beneath the tree as tree food brings living on, the concept of living on, 
really into possibility for me. The knowing that the way my daughter laughs and cries is just like me. And the way my grandfather laughed and cried was just like me. Some of, in some of those expressions, emotional expressions, I'll bet you are ancient, going way back. So I believe there's absolute proof that we do live on and that our ancestors live on through us. That's what bristlecone pine has done for me. The way I have lived, there ain't no way to tell when I die if I'm going to heaven or hell. So I'd just as soon serve out eternity's time asleep at the feet of the bristlecone pine. We can all live on through music, and the song that's being shared today is by Michael Johnson. This is Bristlecone Pine. Way up in the mountains on the high timber line There's a twisted old tree called a bristlecone pine The wind there is bitter, it cuts like a knife And it keeps that tree holding on for dear life But hold on, it does, standing its ground Standing as empires rise and fall down When Jesus was gathering lambs to his fold The tree was already a thousand years old Now the way I have lived there in no way to tell When I die if I'm going to heaven So when I'm laid to rest, it would suit me just fine To sleep at the feet of the bristlecone pine For as I would slowly return to the earth What little this body mine might be worth would soon start to nourish the roots of that tree and it would partake of the essence of me and who knows but that as the centuries turn a small spark of me might continue to burn as long as the sun did Down on the limbs of the bristlecone pine Now the way I have lived there ain't no way to tell When I die if I'm going to heaven or hell So I just as soon serve out eternity's time Sleep at the feet of the bristlecone pine. Sleep at the feet of the bristlecone
Briscone Pine, performed by Michael Johnson on his recording called Michael Johnson. And my name is Mark Helpsmeet, host of Song of the Soul, a Northern Spirit Radio production website, northernspiritradio.org. And on the site, there's seven and a half years of archives for listening and downloading, links to and info about our guests, plus a place to post comments to help guide me and other listeners. Plus, there's a place to donate funds. So please come to northernspiritradio.org and share yourself and your gifts as you feel clear and able. Michael Johnson is with us here today for Song of the Soul. His website is mjblue.com. His initials, MJ plus the color blue. Blue because of his hit record, Bluer Than Blue. Again, the song Bristlecone Pine, a scrubby, shrubby tree that can be gnarled and really, you know, not so beautiful, but so tenacious with vital life force. Absolutely. It's perhaps not such a pretty picture as the people who say we're made out of stardust, which is in part true. Yeah. But yeah. we're also made of bristlecone pine, and it's made out of us. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep going with your song of the soul. What's up next? Well, I'd like to talk about Emilio. I uh, co-wrote a song with a friend named Tom Keaton. I was a um, student in Barcelona. I studied guitar. The only other American in our at the conservatory was a guy named Ray Thomas. And Ray was a complicated guy. He was diabetic, wouldn't take his insulin. He was a Rosicrucian and would stare at a candle and become sort of trance-like. And then he would play. He would play guitar and he had the best sound of all of us. We all stayed in this same pension, same boarding house, except for the local Spanish folks who lived there, but all the foreigners stayed in the same hotel boarding house. And we slept with the guitars under the bed. I thought it was so romantic. So you would wake up in the morning, pull the guitar out, sit up, and start to play. And you could tell who was awake by, well, number one, where it was coming from. And number two, how good it was. And Ray was above me and to my right. His sound was unmistakable. This would be at six in the morning or something. And he would be playing and then suddenly the sound would stop. And so several of us would have to run up there to make sure Ray was alive and had taken his shot. And, you know, it was a pretty, <laughs> pretty interesting time. But he was an amazing guy from Fort Worth. So I'm telling my buddy Tom Keaton about this. And he said, oh, I know a guy like that, too. Plays guitar, drinks too much, lives in his head plays flamenco guitar, lives in Miami, gets kind of half in the bag and dances with the moon. So we decided to put these two people together in a song. And I like it because, I mean, I include this as a soulful song, partially because of Emilio's skepticism. Is it the last verse where uh, in his dreams he can see the abuelas? And the abuelas are the, the grandmothers. They're sort of professional mourners. They offer him wafers and wine. Well, then it says, suspicious Emilio measures the vino against the divine. Just like Carl Jung said about alcohol being, you know, why do they call it spirits? And the fact that we're on the same quest, the drinker and the seeker, but maybe they just went to the wrong address. Uh, <laughs> the, the vino against the divine. Then it says, he, but he never has come to believe them or accepted their heavenly host. Sabicus and Salvador Dali, the saint and the sinner he prays to the most. And Sabicus was a, a world-famous 
flamenco guitarist, really hot player. So he likes Salvador Dali. He likes art and music, and that is the saint and the sinner. That's his spiritual window. And there have been many times in my life where music has been it. Music has been my spiritual expression. That's why I wanted to include Emilio into this list. Emilio lives in an attic Plays a flamenco guitar Arpeggios fall out his window And roll down the fenders of rusted out cars They harmonize with the sirens And mix with that racket downstairs Wander out into the traffic Emilio's misguided prayers The moon is Emilio's mistress On her there's no turning his back Some night she comes to it, naked and cold. Some nights she only wears black. When the fundador flows from his bottle, somehow there's always a fight. When the moon and the lunatic dance segurias, their beautiful music spills into the night and they dance.
moving and deep lyrics and music by Michael Johnson. The song is Emilio, and it's from Michael's latest recording, Moonlit Deja Vu. And one of the several parts that makes it so powerful to me is that I believe it was a flute soaring around in there. Who was the contributor on the flute? His name is Dave Carr, fabulous player in Minneapolis, and uh, it's an alto flute, so it's got a low aspect to it. I was looking for something almost Moorish to go along, and I was tempted to try and play a flamenco-ish kind of solo, and it all just seemed a little too predictable that way. And as soon as the idea of an alto flute came, I knew who the guy was, and David is just a fabulous, wonderful player. And the lyrics in that song are just delicious. You already mentioned your growing up Catholic and your enthusiasm for the candles and incense, all those things I find so beautiful, and of course, the wine. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, your taste in spirits, what kind of spirits do you like best? I'm guessing that Buddhists aren't supposed to be much too attached to alcoholic spirits, but you know, I don't really know for sure. I think they are. I do like red wine, and I think I shouldn't. I think I should like something else. For years, I drank cognac, thinking that I should do that. But that's just like rocket fuel to me now. I don't do that. So I'll have a glass of wine now and then. So you spent some time in Spain. How long were you there? Just a year. And you know, I could have learned more or as much in New York or London. I don't know. uh, Well, I do know why I went. I started telling everyone I was going to go. And then finally, my girlfriend, I think, said, well, when are you going? And it occurred to me that I'd backed myself into this position. And so I went to Spain, and I did get a bit of the, not flamenco really, but there's a Spanish sauce to the classical teachers there. I did get a little bit of that. I can do a few rasqueados and whatnot in my playing. But I could have learned as much just by staying in Denver studying, for that matter. Is your connection equally balanced between lyrics and guitar, or is it tilted in one direction or another? I do sense that you have a real strong connection with the guitar. There is. There's a serious connection with guitar, and I'm not an improviser. I really like to sculpt arrangements so that they're solid. They're almost, well, I, you know, I consider them compositions, musical compositions. And so the music is really important, but the lyric is just as important. In fact, more so because in the end, the song has to be about something. So the meaning of the lyric has got to be justified by the music. And I've written some, I wrote 14 articles for a magazine called The Performing Songwriter and putting that into a book now. And it's essentially how to play and sing at the same time, which is the art of self-accompaniment. And I've always had great respect for an appropriate accompanist, somebody who knows how to support and to beautify, but to stay out of the way the rest of the time. So that's kind of what I try and do. And I love guitar so much that occasionally the part gets a little busy and I try not to steal the listener's ear too much with the arrangement, but it's a struggle. Do you do instrumentals? I've only done a couple and people ask me often, I would like to do that. I'd like to do more of that. That would actually be a big challenge for me because, you know, when I was studying guitar over there in Barcelona, those folks were not learning instrumental music with the idea of accompanying them, their voices which was all that I was about there. That is something, to make the guitar be the voice. So I'd consider that a great challenge. Well, please share some more of your music. Okay. I wrote a song many years ago called Cain's Blood, and it just sort of 
fell out. I remember where I was sitting. I was in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, sitting on the back stoop of a little house, you know, two concrete steps coming out of the back. You know, it seemed like such a simple idea. Half of my blood is Cain's blood and half is Abel, and it's just the duality in us and in me. And I wrote some verses that were in an early version I did on an album. Forty years later, I revisited the song and realized that you can actually co-write with yourself because you're not the same person. And with the help of a guy, a wonderful writer named Jack Sundrud, we rewrote Cain's Blood. It was a hit for a band called Forerunner 10, 12 years ago now. Some of the early lyrics just seemed a little dated, but I wish I'd included them in my solo version. The missing verse is, Doves don't know the half of it. Hawks don't know the other. Kill for peace, pray for rain, but watch out for your brother. And in fact, on the country version, they added a part, unbeknownst to me, that involved a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, which was never my cup of tea. But it still speaks to the duality. Cain's Blood by Michael Johnson.
We've got some true music treasures with us today on Song of the Soul. The music's by Michael Johnson and the song you just heard, Cain's Blood, from Michael's CD, All You Mad Musicians. Identifying your true inner musician, is that what the name's about? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Are you saying by the song that you felt both of those impulses in you, the light and the dark, good and the bad, the troublemaker and the angel, you mean Michael Johnson isn't all clean-cut, spotless perfection? You found me out. Oh, Yes, no. yes, oh, no. absolutely. I've experienced the duality. There's a junkie driving the bus sometimes, folks. <laughs> so at the age of 68, which is where I think you are, does that mean that you've settled down a little bit? I mean, isn't it? kind of dangerous to give Cain too much control when you're getting on the other slope of certain downhills in your life? Yeah, I suppose it is. It is dangerous. I think luckily, on my part, I wound up unable to debauch or not wanting to before it turned out to be uh, something that I shouldn't do. It's just something that I didn't do. And I'm, I'm glad of that because I did have some wild and woolly times through the 60s and 70s. And Oh, yeah. You know, there's so many talented people that we lost very prematurely, people who are gifted in so many different ways, folks like Janis Joplin or Jim Morrison of the Doors or Lenny Bruce. It's scary to think how easily we can see greatness slip away. So you didn't come too close to tripping over that line, I hope? No, no, I didn't. But yeah, that does amaze me. Sometimes I wonder whether it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you know, you got to suffer if you're going to sing the blues, as they say. So you should just go ahead and go out there and suffer because you love the blues. I don't know. Some people I know are just nuts. I mean, I do know some creative types who are just simply children when it comes to trying to control themselves. But others, I don't know. I just wondered in, the, in myself whether or not I just sort of had license. It was somewhat expected of me because I was creative. And so I just went ahead and said, yeah, let's rock and roll. I tend to think of you in the singer-songwriter genre rather than the party-hardy rock-out variety of music. Although I, I recognize, of course, that there's an entire spectrum of music and people. But I think of you as closer to the folk edge. And I think that folkies are just not expected to burn out and plummet so suddenly like a falling star. Right. Has being in that genre helped keep you from some of the excesses? I wonder. Maybe it does. Although there are singer-songwriters from Texas who have set quite a standard, you know. Uh, <laughs> Towns Van Zant and Yeah, there are people who burned out young and who were burning bright all their lives. It happens. Well, unfortunately, the clock is ticking down. Time for just one more song. So how can we finish this off with all that fine music and you know, really well-loved tunes that you've been part of? There are hours of it, literally. But I'm afraid that we have time for just one more song. Well, thank you, Mark, for this opportunity. I would talk about a song, another Hugh Prestwood song, called Upon a Christmas Eve. I'm one who can become quite a curmudgeon over the holidays. And I, you know, I'll say, if I hear Jingle Bell Rock one more time or something like that, I won't be in some sort of predetermined Christmas spirit until all of a sudden somebody's like civil to me at a four-way stop or something. And all of a sudden, I'll just get a little glimmer of friendliness in humanity. It's, I'm a very odd person that way. 
but I like the song Upon a Christmas Eve because it's it's about the child within, the child that gets reborn within. You don't necessarily have to be overtly Christian or anything, even even theistic in some senses. Once again, going back to therapists who talk about the inner child, which is a useful model for a while, but then I'd get a little tired of it. But in this song, he feels the child in him reborn. And I just think that's a, that's a marvelous way to look at it. And also there's a, there's a bag lady angel who appears. That also is great because I don't know about the word angel, but I have seen, I guess I would say that was an angel. Sometimes it's a cop or highway patrolman. As we were putting my mother's ashes in the river, and he was sitting in his car above us on a bridge, and I thought, boy, if you come down here and talk to us about littering, I'm going to really... But he wasn't. He was there overseeing, and the minute we were done, he drove off. So there's a bag lady angel who's got some great advice for the singer in this song. Something to help us continue the Christmas spirit year-round with that joy and hope reborn in us in every moment. That's right. It's a joy getting to connect with you after all these years of being moved by your music. Thank you so much for joining me for Song of the Soul. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark. You can listen to more gems from this interview because we couldn't pack all the good music and deep sharing in just less than an hour. Look for the bonus excerpts for Michael Johnson on northernspiritradio.org. But for the moment, we'll close with Upon a Christmas Eve. See you next week for Song of the Soul. I walked out on Christmas Eve To see the city lights Up and down the avenue I marveled at the sights Flung out diamonds Strung out pearls Shimmered in the cold While dark skyscrapers Stood their watch on windows dressed in gold And like a wise man chasing stars I looked for a child One asleep inside of me Who Christmas wants Through the falling snow attract a fading memory until decked out in ragged clothes an angel came to me. Smiled and said, the one you've lost is easy to retrieve. All you need to bring him home is something to
a thousand bells ring out Announcing Christmas morn And at that moment I did feel the child Theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy.